This episode is brought to you by Symphony, a global software design and product development firm with presence in the United States, Latin America, and Europe. Almost every SaaS CEO with whom I'm familiar will likely agree that the technical due diligence process is perhaps the most important work stream for any prospective software CEO to get right. This is especially true for those like me who would classify themselves as non-technical. This is one of the reasons why I'm excited to partner with Symphony. Symphony not only performs technical due diligence engagements for search funds, private equity firms, and strategic acquirers, but they also work with companies to immediately begin executing on the problems and opportunities identified throughout the course of that process, as they do essentially everything related to product. This can include outsourcing your development entirely, augmenting your existing team, prototyping a new product, refreshing your UI, or professionalizing your QA operation, to name just a few. Symphony was co-founded by a Stanford GSB grad in 2007 and now has over 700 full-time development, product, and design resources across the globe, in addition to business and strategic resources from McKinsey, BCG, Google, and several private equity firms. For listeners of In the Trenches, Symphony is offering a full 15% off of any of their services, and that includes the technical due diligence engagements. Just go to the contact form on their website and tell them that you're a listener of the podcast. It's lastly worth noting that their team is fully staffed and ready to go. So if you have a technical due diligence or other product engagement that's time sensitive, it's definitely worth checking them out at symphony.is. That's symphony.is. This episode is brought to you by Oberly Risk Strategies. Now, some of you likely know Oberly is the insurance brokerage and insurance diligence provider for the search fund community and has been trusted by search investors, lenders, searchers, and CEOs for over a decade now. The company is led by August Felker, himself a two-time successful searcher, both within the funded and self-funded models. He personally runs Oberly's dedicated search fund practice that works with searchers across the entire diligence, purchase, and post-close process. Their due diligence offering, which is 100% free of charge, by the way, will assess the pros and cons of your target company's insurance program and will summarize any potential coverage gaps, the pro forma insurance pricing, and the program structure changes needed for closing. At or shortly after closing, they will then execute on all of those findings on your behalf. In nine out of every 10 client engagements, they're able to either reduce spend or improve coverage, all in such a way that the searcher or CEO can focus on other things while Oberly handles all things insurance for them. Oberly has serviced over 900 customers across a decade of operation and has an NPS score that puts them at the top of their industry. But don't take my word for it. Click on the hyperlink located within the show notes or in today's episode description, and we will gladly put you in touch with as many happy Oberly customers as you'd like. When acquiring small to medium-sized businesses, buyers often utilize a tool called an earnout, which is a form of contingent consideration that sellers may receive at some point in the future in addition to the cash that they stand to receive at closing. Though earnouts can be a useful and mutually beneficial tool for both buyers and sellers under the right circumstances, without careful structuring and consideration, they can be fraught with risk and unintended consequences. Before you propose an earnout as part of your own acquisition, 
I'd encourage you to think through some of the risks and considerations that follow. But before we get to all that, what is an earnout? Well, an earnout can be thought of as a portion of the purchase price that the seller will receive contingent on certain things happening, or not happening in some cases. For example, consider an acquirer that has offered to buy your company at a $20 million valuation, but instead of paying you $20 million upfront in cash, your acquirer has proposed an $11 million cash payment today and a $9 million earnout to be paid over the course of the next three years based on the attainment of agreed upon revenue objectives. For example, the terms of that earnout can say that as the seller, you stand to receive a, a $3 million payment after year one if sales grow by at least 10% year over year. B, a further $3 million payment after year two if sales grow by at least 15% year over year. And C, a final $3 million payment after year three if sales grow by at least 20% year over year. The sum of those three payments equals to a total of $9 million. So despite a headline valuation of $20 million, $9 million of the seller's potential proceeds are at risk via the earnout and will only be paid to her if the company achieves the agreed-upon milestones. I happen to use revenue as the basis of the earnout in our simple example above, but earnouts can be based on EBITDA, cash flow, gross margin, or any number of other variables. The purpose of earnouts. Earnouts can be proposed as part of a transaction for many reasons, but below are some of the more common reasons for their inclusion. First, to bridge a valuation gap between buyer and seller. Perhaps the most common reason for the inclusion of an earnout is to bridge a gap between what a buyer is willing to pay and what a seller is willing to accept. For example, if I want to pay a maximum of $10 million for your company, but you're only willing to sell it to me for a minimum of $12 million, we may be able to bridge that $2 million valuation gap through an earnout. Under the terms of such an earnout, as the buyer, I'd likely propose that I pay you the extra $2 million only if the company achieved certain agreed upon milestones after closing, and usually the financial or operational metrics proposed as earnout targets are representative of best case scenario levels of performance. In instances like these, the buyer only pays, quote, extra for exceptional company performance, and the seller eventually gets her desired purchase price of $12 million. Reason number two would be to provide the seller with upside for exceptional company performance. Though the situation that I just walked through may sound perfectly logical from the perspective of a buyer, all else being equal, sellers understandably tend to prefer cash upfront to any form of contingent consideration, including and especially earnouts. If a seller is to accept an earnout, they usually tend to seek some sort of upside as compensation for assuming the additional risk. So extending our simple example above, in response to the buyer's first proposal of a $2 million earnout, the seller may counter with a $4 million earnout instead. This way, if her company does indeed perform exceptionally well post-close, she gets $14 million in total proceeds, which is $2 million more than the $12 million that she was originally seeking, which would compensate her for the risk of having accepted this form of contingent consideration in the first place. Reason number three for the inclusion of earnouts could be to align the interests and incentives between buyers and sellers. 
When purchasing small and medium-sized businesses, buyers are often, though not always, acquiring the company from their original founders, who often still play a very material role in the day-to-day operations of the company. And even if they aren't, they almost always have decades of experience, expertise, context, and relationships that are extremely difficult for a new buyer to replicate in any reasonable amount of time. Indeed, understanding, managing, and mitigating this key person risk is a critical consideration in substantially every SMB deal that I've ever been a part of. For this reason, earnouts are often proposed, as are equity roles and seller notes, as a tool to incentivize the seller to cooperate with the buyer post-close, even after she no longer owns the company. Absent this type of economic incentive, buyers run the risk of taking over a going concern company without the much-needed help of the outgoing CEO. Now, it's probably worth noting here that selling CEOs often genuinely value an orderly transition for their employees and customers, even without a financial incentive, but buyers are understandably uncomfortable without having some sort of formal risk-sharing mechanism in place. And last but not least, another reason to include an earnout could be to defer or finance a portion of the purchase price. Though there are likely better ways to do this, sometimes earnouts can be a way for a buyer to defer or even finance a portion of the purchase price, often with a view towards funding the deferred component of that purchase price with cash flow produced by the company in the months and years to come, as opposed to funding it with additional equity upfront. Though debt usually fulfills this role in most acquisitions, expensive and or illiquid credit markets may force buyers to be more creative in using earnouts as quasi-debt-like instruments. Things to watch out for when proposing and structuring an earnout. As mentioned above, without careful structuring and consideration, earnouts can be fraught with risk and unintended consequences. Below are a few of the variables to consider before including an earnout in your next offer. Number one, what is the earnout based on? Though earnouts are most frequently based off of metrics like revenue, gross profit, gross margin, or EBITDA, buyers and sellers are theoretically limited only by their imaginations, what is measurable, and what is mutually acceptable in selecting an earnout target. In selecting your own earnout target, it's worth considering the following. First, don't optimize around a strategically unimportant variable simply because you're hoping to bridge a valuation gap with your seller. If your investment thesis primarily revolves around growth and profitability, then a revenue-based earnout likely doesn't make much sense. The inverse is obviously true as well. In fact, the earnout target that you select should be indicative of what is strategically important to you going forward. This also implies that earnout targets don't necessarily need to be taken directly from the financial statements, though if they're not, both parties need to ensure that the target can indeed be accurately and objectively measured. For example, if as a buyer, let's say that you are most worried about concentration risk within the company's largest customer. Well, if this is the case, perhaps you can propose an earnout target that is based on a combination of the dollar amount of revenue and the percentage of total revenue generated by that customer in years one, two, and maybe even three from closing. Next, while it's critical to choose a strategically important earnout target, buyers must balance this desire against a strong preference for simplicity and objective measurement everywhere possible. All else being equal, in my opinion, simpler earnout targets are usually better than more complicated ones, even though simpler targets often have their own obvious shortcomings. 
For example, consider revenue-based targets. Some people don't like revenue-based earnouts because revenue is often seen as a vanity metric and may create incentives for the outgoing CEO to encourage or generate sales from unprofitable or non-strategic customers. Though a profitability-based earnout could theoretically address both of these risks, simply agreeing on what profitability means can be much harder than most might suspect. Anybody who has ever engaged in a protracted debate with a seller about what adjusted EBITDA actually is can likely empathize. This is the reason why EBITDA-based earnouts are sometimes jokingly referred to as deferred lawsuits by those in the legal and accounting professions. Number two, beware of unintended consequences. Charlie Munger has famously said that, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. And as if that weren't clear enough, he's also said, never ever think about something else when you should be thinking about the power of incentives. So generally, people do what they're incented to do, and working towards earnout targets is no exception. As in our example above, a buyer may be reticent to propose a revenue-based earnout if the former owner and CEO is going to be running the sales operation immediately post-close, because now they are theoretically incented to accept any source of revenue, regardless of its structural attractiveness or strategic importance. Now again, for the purposes of this discussion, we're focusing only on financial motivators and ignoring intrinsic motivators, like the desire to do the right thing for the company, which we can only hope is the sentiment that ultimately prevails. On the other side of the coin, a seller may be reticent to accept a profitability-based earnout because usually the buyer is in control of managing operating expenses post-close, and at least in theory, they could temporarily inflate operating expenses just enough to avoid hitting a given profitability target, and as a result, not having to pay the earnout in question. This is especially true if the earnout payment is a large one. So even if you're convinced that your counterparty is entirely trustworthy and ethical, you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't at least contemplate the incentives that your proposed earnout may be accidentally creating. Number three, who controls the variable subject to the earnout? Closely linked to the considerations above is the concept of control, and specifically the relationship between control and rewards. For example, sellers may be understandably hesitant to accept a revenue-based earnout if they're no longer going to be control of generating revenue after closing. If their ability to collect their reward no longer falls under their control, or under their influence at the very least, then all else being equal, they're pretty unlikely to accept it. In a different situation, buyers may be hesitant to propose an earnout, even if it does bridge a valuation gap, if they'd effectively be paying a seller for the value that they single-handedly created as the buyer. So consider a situation where there is a valuation gap between the buyer and the seller, but the seller is planning to leave the business immediately upon closing. In this case, does it still make sense for the buyer to propose a two to three year earnout to bridge that valuation gap for the performance that they are likely entirely responsible for generating as the new owner? If the buyer is primarily responsible for the better than expected performance, shouldn't the rewards accrue to them? Number four, the earnout payment itself. Once you've decided on the target subject to the earnout, 
and have determined who is going to be largely responsible for the attainment of those targets, you must then consider several variables related to the earnout payment itself, more specifically. First, buyers must be clear on how they're specifically planning to fund the earnout payment. Said another way, where's that money going to come from? In the best case scenario, earnout payments are funded by cash flow generated by the company. However, depending on the size of the earnout payment and the ability of the company to actually generate the cash in question, that isn't always an option. If the earnout payment is to be funded through debt, then buyers must ensure that they will indeed have access to that capital. Be careful with lines of credit as they can be pulled by your bank at any time most frequently and often are pulled during particularly turbulent macroeconomic periods. Buyers must also further ensure that adding additional leverage to the company in years one, two, or three post-close won't violate any covenants currently in place with their lenders. Funding an earnout through the issuance of additional equity is often the least preferable option. It is expensive capital, can be dilutive, and can feel a bit less like better economics for better performance and a bit more like deferred purchase price. Next, if the primary purpose of including an earnout is to align the interests and incentives between buyer and seller, then buyers must ask whether the size of the earnout is large enough to have its intended effects. For example, if your seller stands to make $50 million in cash at closing, chances are that a $2 million earnout is unlikely to keep them particularly motivated despite the fact that $2 million is indeed a lot of money in an absolute sense, but in a relative sense, the seller is likely to view it as immaterial and may act accordingly. Number five, what valuation are you ascribing to the incremental revenue or profit? So if an earnout is based on revenue or EBITDA targets, and if the buyer is paying an approximate multiple of revenue or EBITDA, then both buyers and sellers must ask what multiple is being paid for the incremental stream of revenue or EBITDA subject to the earnout target. So that might sound like a bit of word salad, so consider the following example. So a buyer agrees to pay $4 million for a $1 million EBITDA company. That implies a four times EBITDA purchase multiple. EBITDA is expected to be flat in the 12 months after closing, and that's one of the reasons why the company commanded only a four times multiple. So to incent the seller, the buyer proposes an earnout payment of a million dollars if the company is able to grow EBITDA by 500K 12 months after closing. So who's the winner in this situation if the earnout target is indeed hit? Well, some might say the seller because she now has $500,000 more in her pocket than she otherwise would have had. However, I might suggest that the buyer is the real winner in this situation because they have just acquired $500,000 of more EBITDA for a two times multiple. We got there by just taking the million dollar earnout payment and dividing it by $500,000 of new EBITDA. That valuation of two times is half of what the buyer thought the earnings of the business were actually worth, equal to the original four times multiple. So consider a different example that illustrates the opposite point. So in this example, a buyer agrees to pay $5 million for a $1 million ARR software company, which implies a five times ARR multiple. In this case, ARR is expected to grow by 20% to $1.2 million in the 12 months after closing. To incent the seller, the buyer proposes an earnout payment of $1.5 million if the company is able to achieve $1.4 million in ARR, which represents a 40% year-over-year growth a year after closing. What is wrong with this scenario? 
Well, nothing necessarily, but if the buyer's agreeing to pay an incremental $1.5 million in purchase price for an incremental 200 k in revenue, then she must realize that at 7.5 times ARR, which is the $1.5 million earnout payment divided by the 200 k in incremental revenue, she's actually valuing that revenue stream more highly than she originally valued the company's revenue stream at 5 times ARR. As much as that delta could be justified, after all, she bought a 40% growth business when she thought she was buying a 20% growth business, it could just as easily be an oversight or an accidental incentive for her seller to generate revenue that is less profitable or less strategically important than the million dollars of ARR that the valuation of her company was initially based off of. Number six, will the seller demand a board seat? Related to the concept of control discussed above, sellers with material earnouts often, and understandably, demand a seat on the company's board of directors after closing to ensure that they continue to have some say in the matters that may impact the ability of the company to hit the agreed upon targets. The higher the dollar amount of the earnout, or the greater the percentage of total consideration that it represents, the more likely they will be to make such a request. As I mentioned in a previous post, entitled Constructing, Managing, and Working with a Board of Directors, these types of arrangements can and do work well in certain circumstances, but in at least an equal number of circumstances, they can prove to be highly problematic. This is so for a number of reasons, including A. Despite everybody's best intentions, operational and ownership transitions between incoming and outgoing CEOs often don't work out as well as originally envisioned. B, if the new CEO has to make changes to the company, especially drastic changes, articulating the need to make these changes to the board can be much more challenging for the new CEO if the mistakes being cleared up were effectively created by the previous CEO, who in this case happens to also sit on the company's board. And finally, sellers understandably tend to be very emotionally connected to their companies and as a result are often very resistant to change or think that they know better than a young, inexperienced CEO. It is almost always harder than originally anticipated for sellers to watch a new owner make changes to the business that they previously thought of as an extension of themselves. I'm not suggesting that one should never consider offering a board seat to a seller, especially if they have a meaningful earnout in place but instead that one should be very thoughtful about the potential merits and risks of doing so. In sum, earnouts can be highly useful and mutually beneficial tools for both buyers and sellers under the right circumstances. However, without careful structuring and consideration, they can be fraught with risk and unintended consequences. Whether you're using an earnout to bridge a valuation gap, to align the interests of your seller with your own, or to defer a portion of the purchase price, your earnout should be as thoughtful, analytical, and well constructed as the rest.